Salvation is entirely the work of God from beginning to end. And when you understand that, it brings a great sense of security because I didn't start it, I'm not keeping it going, and I'm not the one responsible to finish it. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of his four-part series titled, No Condemnation. So far throughout this series in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we've examined the realities of the great truth that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no longer any condemnation. But why is that? What is the basis for that great and awesome truth? And why should every believer hold tightly to it? Does it have to do with how good, decent, or moral someone is? Or is there more going on in these verses? Well, that's what Tom will explore today as he looks at just how those who repent and believe in Christ Jesus move from a place of eternal condemnation to no longer being condemned, but accepted and secure. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, we read, As many as are of the works of the law, they are under a curse. They're under God's condemnation. For it is written, Cursed, condemned is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Condemned by God. That's what we all were. Condemned criminals, sentenced to hell for eternity. But through His work on the cross, our Lord has completely, permanently removed our condemnation. That's what Paul is explaining to us in the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. Now just to remind you, the theme of this entire chapter is this. Every believer in Jesus Christ is absolutely secure. He can never be ultimately lost. He or she is eternally secure. Paul explains that our salvation is secure and our eternity is assured for several amazing reasons. Last week we began to study just the first paragraph in this chapter and the first great reason that we are secure and that reason is this, God has delivered us from condemnation. God has delivered us from condemnation. We see this in the first four verses of Paul's letter to the Romans in the eighth chapter. Let's read it together. You follow along. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, as Paul develops this point, 
that God has delivered us from our condemnation in those first four verses, he does so in two ways. First of all, as we began to see last week, he declares the reality of no condemnation. The reality. Verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Without Christ, we are condemned. God, our lawgiver and judge, has already found us guilty, and He's already pronounced the sentence. And all that remains is the execution of that sentence. You know, there are a lot of people who think that someday they'll stand at the judgment, and that's when God will make a final decision about their case. Maybe you think that. Maybe you think, well, I'm just going to kind of keep doing the best I can, and it'll all turn out all right because the verdict is still out. Let me tell you, on the basis of God's Word, the verdict on you, if you have not believed in Christ, is not still out. You are condemned, just as all the rest of us would be apart from Jesus Christ. And all that will happen at the judgment is that condemnation will be formally announced. But in this one stunning verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, we, we learn several key insights into this incredible reality that for believers in Jesus, there is now no condemnation. The first insight we saw is a logical connection. We see it in the word therefore, which connects back to not to chapter 7 or even to chapter 6. Those are sort of parentheses in Paul's thought. But back to the end of chapter 5. The second half of chapter 5 provides the legal basis on which a just God can declare wicked sinners to be righteous. And that legal basis is our representative. We are in Christ. And we get the benefit of what He does. In that passage, in the second half of Romans 5, we find the only other two times that Paul uses this word condemnation. And in that context, he concludes chapter 5 with the idea that there is no condemnation for believers because we are in Christ, because He is our representative. So it makes sense then here in chapter 8, verse 1, that he picks up that same theme again. He skips over chapters 6 and 7, which were kind of a, a parenthesis in his thought as he answered a couple of key questions, and now he comes back to the main idea. A second insight that we saw in verse 1 is our legal status, which is there is now no condemnation. We looked at that concept of condemnation. It means two things. To be condemned means to receive a verdict of guilty, and secondly, to be sentenced for the penalty that that crime deserves. That's condemnation. A guilty verdict and the sentence that it deserves. Paul says, for the sinner who has been justified, for the sinner who has believed in Jesus and been declared right with God, there is no condemnation. Neither of those things is true. There's no guilty verdict, and there's no penalty awaiting us. There is now no condemnation. Thirdly, we saw the special beneficiaries there in verse 1. Who receives this amazing declaration of no condemnation? It's those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You see, there is only one way that we as condemned sinners can ever get rid of our condemnation. It's because we are connected to Jesus Christ. God changes our verdict from condemnation to no condemnation because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Now that brings us today to the reason for no condemnation. We're still looking at this first major reason for our security. It's that God has delivered us from condemnation. We've seen the reality of that in verse 1. In verses 2 through 4, we see the reason for no condemnation. Let's take this passage apart. First of all, we discover here the reason itself, which is our new freedom from God's law. That's the reason there's no condemnation. It's because we enjoy a new freedom from God's law. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now let me admit to you that that is a very difficult verse. In fact, there are a number of different interpretations of it, and some misinterpret this verse and end up on the wrong track for much of the first half of chapter 8. We don't want to do that, so let me just warn you about one common misunderstanding, and that is to conclude that the freedom that Paul is talking about here in verse 2 is the freedom as a Christian over the daily struggle with sin. In other words, there are those who say, well, Paul's just been talking about the struggle with sin at the end of chapter 7, and this freedom from sin must be that freedom, that that daily struggle with sin. They teach, and I've mentioned this before, this is the group that teaches that you need to stop living in the second half of Romans 7 and, and its defeat, and you need to start living in chapter 8 and the victory that's yours in Christ. So get out of chapter 7 and get into chapter 8, they say. And for them, What Paul is talking about here in verse 2 is that daily victory over sin. They would say, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from, from the daily power and struggle of sin in your life. But I don't believe verse 2 can be about sanctification. And that's true for a couple of reasons. Let me share them with you. I don't think that's what Paul is teaching here. Because notice the little word for that begins verse 2. When you read your Bibles, be looking for those little words that carry a heavy weight, that show you the the connection point between two ideas. This word for that begins verse 2 is one of those words. That little word means that verse 2 is the reason that there is now no condemnation. So if verse 2 is about our sanctification, then Paul is saying you are no longer condemned because you are now holy. Now think about that for a moment. He would be arguing that the basis on which you are right with God is a righteousness within you. The basis on which there's no condemnation is what you have done, your righteousness thoughts and words and actions. Folks, that's not the biblical gospel. What I've just explained is actually a false works-based gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not everyone who takes verse 2 to be teaching sanctification is teaching a false gospel. I'm not saying that. 
But I'm saying that's the logical conclusion of this if they're connected as Paul connects them. A second reason that I really don't believe verse 2 is talking about sanctification is the main verb of verse 2. Notice, has set you free. First of all, that little pronoun you is all the Christians to whom Paul was writing in Rome, and therefore all of us. So all Christians are included here, and the verb tense speaks of something that has already happened in the past to all Christians. He says, all of you have been set free in this way. So if he's talking about sanctification, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. So if that's not the proper understanding of verse 2, what is? Listen carefully. Verse 2 is not about our sanctification. It's about our justification. God declaring the believing sinner to be right with him because of the work of Christ. Now let's look at it more carefully. You'll notice, first of all, that there are two laws mentioned in verse 2. First of all, there is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, clearly, that is referring to the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit made possible through the work of Christ. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 63, the Spirit is described this way by Jesus Himself. It is the Spirit who gives life. So we're talking about the life-giving power of the Spirit through the work of Christ. But what is the law of the Spirit? That's an interesting expression. The law of the Spirit. Well, it is the message of the gospel. You realize that the Spirit is the author of the gospel, and it's through the Spirit's power using that gospel that He brings us to life. You say, but why would he call it the law? Why would he call the gospel the law of the Spirit? Well, Paul's already done this. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 27, he refers to the gospel as the law of faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, he connects the gospel with the Spirit. When he calls the gospel the ministry of the Spirit. And so, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the gospel which the Spirit uses to bring life. And that gospel is about the work of Jesus Christ. That's how all of that comes together. Now look at the second law mentioned in verse 2. It's the law of sin and death. What's that? Some say, well, Paul just back at the end of chapter 7 referred to the, the law of sin which is in my members, this principle of ongoing struggle with sin that's in me. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Well, that's possible, but not likely. Because again, notice the connection. Notice verse 3 begins with the little word for again. And what follows in verse 3 clearly refers to the law of God. So the law of sin and of death must also be a reference to the law of God. You say, well, why would he call the law of God the law of sin and death? Well, he's done this before. You remember back in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. We learned there that a proper understanding of God's law, when you really get it, when you see what God commands, it leads to what? Sin. In two ways. One, it shows you your sin. It identifies your sin. But also, it awakens more sin. Just like when you tell a kid, don't touch that, and the child says, touch what? 
That's what the law does for us as well. It is therefore the law of sin. It awakens sin in us. And what does that sin lead to? The wages of sin is death. So God's law then can properly, and he's already called it that back in chapter 7, be called the law of sin and of death. So here then, let me put it all together. Listen carefully. In verse 2, Paul is saying that the Spirit's power working in and through the gospel has forever freed us from the demands and penalty of God's law. The law that for us only brought sin and death. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been set permanently free from God's law. Now, let me speak for a moment to those of you who are here who know you're not in Christ. For whatever reason, you find yourself here, but you know you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ. You have never humbled yourself and confessed your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and confessed Him as Lord. You know that's true. Let me, let me tell you your situation. You are still under God's law, is the expression Paul uses. What does that mean? Well, it means you have three options. If you're not a believer, when it comes to God's law, what God has told you to do, you have three options. Option number one, you can keep it perfectly and earn eternal life, which of course is an impossibility. You already can check that one off. You can't do that. You haven't done that. Neither have I. Perfect love for God, perfect love for others. Do that and live, the Bible says. But you haven't done it, and I haven't done it. So just check that one off. That's not a valid option. Option number two, fail to keep God's law perfectly and be punished eternally for every violation against God and His law. And option number three, and by the way, option number two, that happens if you do nothing. Option number three, turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, admitting your own inability and clinging solely to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to His perfect life, to His substitutionary death, to His resurrection. If you are a Christian, that is exactly what happened at the moment of your salvation. You repented and believed. And when that happened, you were removed from the demands of the law. Look back at chapter 6, verse 14. He says at the second half of the verse, you are not under law, but under grace. He says it again in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Free from the law. But what does that mean? In what sense are we free from the law? Only in this sense. We are no longer under the law as a way to be justified before God. Here's what you are free from, believer. You are free from trying to keep God's law as a way to earn your own personal righteousness, to earn your way into God's favor, to earn heaven. 
Paul puts it this way in Acts 13, 39, through Christ, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Or take what I think is the most concise statement about the role of the law in the entire Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Here it is. It doesn't get any more concise than this. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What does that mean? John Gerstner writes this. Paul meant that the law became his teacher to lead him away from itself to the Savior. When he fully comprehended the law's meaning, he realized what a violator of it he actually was, and he died to it. In what way? Listen to this. As the meritorious ground of salvation. That's how you died to the law. That somehow keeping it, you would merit salvation with God. So then the main point of verse 2 is that the, the Holy Spirit through the gospel, has freed us from the demands of the law, has freed us from keep it and live or break it and be condemned. And that's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that brings us to verse 3. And here we discover how our freedom from the law that led to our no condemnation was actually accomplished. How did God accomplish this freedom that we now have from the law and therefore we have no condemnation? Verse 3 gives us the means. And the means is the sacrifice of Christ. Notice verse 3 again, again begins with that word for. Here is the means that God used to bring condemned, hell-deserving sinners to a status of no condemnation. How did that happen? Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Notice, first of all, that expression, what the law could not do. What could the law not do? The law couldn't do two things. God's law, as good as it was, as as helpful as it was, as pure as it is, as much a reflection of God's character as it is, God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, the, the great commands to love God and love others, it can't do two things. Number one, it can't justify us. could never justify us before God. Chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. The law could never justify us. It could never deliver us from the penalty of our sin. It could never accomplish our salvation. But there's a second thing the law could never do. Not only could it not justify us, but the law could never make us righteous. Try as we might to keep it, we would never actually arrive at righteousness. Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. That is God's law. But God's law couldn't do it either. It couldn't justify us, and it couldn't make us truly righteous. Why? Why couldn't the law do these two things? Verse 3 says it. Weak as it was through the flesh. That is, your flesh, 
your humanness, your fallenness, and mine as well. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law. Remember what back in chapter 7 Paul just said about the law. He says it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's spiritual. Our problem is not God's law. The problem is us. Now look again at verse 3. So, what the law could not do, it couldn't justify, it couldn't make us righteous. Weak as it was because of our flesh, because of our fallenness and sin, God did. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, No Condemnation. Tom will bring you part four on our next program, and we hope you join us then. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.